I'm David McGee, and this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. So happy you're with us on the Mayo Lab podcast once again. And as always, we've got Alexis Lee along for the ride. Alexis, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am so great because this is a conversation, uh, It particularly if you are a parent of young men, right? Or hey, if you just have to engage with young men in general, there's a lot to learn about young men. And I think there's a lot of ways we have to help them. You know, this conversation, Alexis, I think is important, really hits home with me, Uh, first of all, because I had two sons uh, that that really struggled with substance use disorder beginning in middle school and into high school. And, um, you know, a lot of that was self-medication. And to be honest, even when I was in middle school and high school, I really struggled with self-identity and who am I? What's my role in the world? And, and there, you know, there were expectations I felt like of who I was supposed to be that I think I battled long into adulthood. So the very notion that uh, someone in a company is out there digging in at the college level to to engage with students around their well-being is a big deal, and we've got just that guest for this episode. We do. Matthew Stefanko, he's the CEO of Manual, a men's health company with a mission to inspire young men to become the best versions of themselves. And they have a really unique approach to how they're working with students on college campuses everywhere, and he gives some great insights into what they are learning about men everywhere. Not to be missed. Matthew Stefanko, welcome to the Mayo Lab podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So, look, you have started a company, Manual, that uh, seeks to help young men find their way. Help me understand, what is this company and what's your mission? Yeah, sure. So, at at a really high level, Manual's mission uh, is to inspire young men to be the best versions of themselves. So that's the that's the kind of short of it. Um, really, the motivation behind Manual is ultimately, you know, like many things, what ended up being the uh, the design of it in many ways. But a lot of that was was personal. But then also what I was seeing sort of in my professional career. So so personally, I, I grew up in a uh, relatively small kind of you know I guess increasingly suburban town in Minnesota. But a lot of the men. Uh, that I grew up around were, uh, you know, blue collar truck drivers, military, et cetera, um, and sharing their perspectives around emotion, vulnerability, all these sorts of things. That wasn't really normal uh, growing up. And I think as I've done this more and I've had more conversations, that's not really unique to to really any part of of, of our country. It's actually pretty universal in all a right. lot of ways. Um, and I struggled w- myself with mental illness, specifically anxiety, and it took many years into college after uh, uh, of, of dealing with that, using alcohol as a coping mechanism like so many young men and, and young adults generally do. Um, and that was all kind of the – that was what really inspired me to move into the behavioral health space in general. And so I had different stints in Baltimore City at their health department. I was at Shatterproof, a 
nonprofit focused on addiction. And when I was at Shatterproof, that was really the motivation behind Manual from a professional standpoint because I was seeing two things. One, the campaigns that we were running around health promotion were extremely successful, except with one demographic, and it was men 18 to 30, 18 to 35. We couldn't figure out how to, how to get to them. And then second, uh, you know, and, and critically, when I was looking at the overdose data, who was dying? It was men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, right? And, and men in their 20s and, and, you know, more generally. But so, so we were kind of, there was this interesting thing of like, this is the group we got to get in front of if we want to save these lives. And then they're not, you know, um, uh, you know, compelled to, to use it. And I just started this exploration of what's going on with young men in our society today and seeing the graduation and enrollment rates rapidly decline, seeing the suicide rate being significantly higher. And men were just retracting from all of these institutions and, 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 and not utilizing them. And, and it became very clear to me that it was because – of the way typically we talk about health, wellness, all of these things, the way we design it are completely at odds with the way that men are socialized, right? So if you're raised one way and then you get to an environment where it's saying you need to be in touch with your feelings, you need to be vulnerable, you say, well, that's not for me. And you resist it and you pull away. And so you can do one of two things, right? You can decide to try to force men to rapidly change the way they're socialized and and sort of it's the boys should cry kind of mentality, right? Or you can say, let's try to meet these men where they are and try to adapt programs to, to do that. And so that's what we've been building over the last seven, eight months. And we take a variety of, of approaches from, you know, from an intervention standpoint. And that includes, you know, this pretty high quality content that we work around with experts that we build for these guys. We we have sort of a peer-based program where we have full-time staff on our team who are what we call men's guides who, who do sort of oversight uh, and have these sort of anonymous chats and conversations. So with that's these guys. done digitally? Like, so you're, 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 engaging with them on a digital platform correct is, is yeah that the... exactly so we we partner with institutions that that serve these young guys so that might be universities it might be with national fraternities it might be with the interfraternity councils and then they ultimately give our service and our platform to the guys that they that they serve uh, for free, and, and that includes a whole suite of things, mm-hmm. right? So, and it's all digital, and it's meant to scale, and it's meant to really meet these guys where they mm-hmm. are, right? So they they have email, so we have a weekly newsletter. They're on social media, so we add them to a closed group on Instagram, and they can see our content on Instagram. They text, and so rather than pulling them to an app, we actually just text them directly, uh, and we get their phone number. And then, of course, they watch videos on their phone, and mm-hmm. so we have an online platform where they can watch all of our content. So we really try to meet them wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we found that these guys do kind of pick a lane, right? They prefer just working with us through the newsletters or they prefer just working with us through the texts or whatever it might be. Um, But yeah, that's the service that they ultimately receive. And then they have access to that, you know, during the duration of uh, of the partnership that we have with these schools. Is there anything... um... Like, like, tell me a few things engaging with college students so far, young men. Tell me a few things you've learned about them. Wh- where are they now? Yeah, uh, they're they're not in great shape. I mean, I think that, and the, and the numbers sort of bear that out, right? I mean, they're they're definitely struggling. I think they are increasingly coming around to the idea that they need help, but they're finding that 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 help is not. Uh, 
you know, compelling to them once they reach out, right? And so they often are finding other pathways, which is a, mm-hmm. a whole additional problem, which is really, you know, scary and challenging. But, um, you know, we, we've learned a few things. I mean, one, when you think about the experience of counseling centers or substance use centers or, 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 or where men should be potentially getting help, many of them, especially black men, Hispanic men, et cetera, they're not finding themselves in the therapists and counselors that are often oh, at these schools. And right. it's, it's not the school's problems, it's a workforce problem. Sure. But inevitably, if 78, 80% of your counseling workforce are women, and the vast majority of those are white women, if you're a young black man, and you want to speak with a young man, black man about your problems, who's a therapist, you're not going to find one, it's going to be really difficult, right? And so they're, they're seeing that disconnection. Second, we're learning about the language a lot that gets talked about. If you walk into, you know, I've now been on the road and been in dozens of counseling centers and on campuses, and uh, we've made a lot of progress opening up about mental health. But unfortunately, most of the messaging about mental health is, how are you feeling? If you need help, reach out. You know, we're here for you. Are you dealing with anxiety? Are you dealing with depression? All of that language is stuff that is totally at odds with these guys, right? They don't want to deal with their feelings. They want to optimize. They want to self-improve. But that's not the messaging that they're mm-hmm. receiving, and so they stay away from it. Um, and there's just still that, that stigma. There's that internalized stigma. So, yes, we've made a lot of progress, but we've not overcome all of the progress. So these guys still don't want to talk with their buddies about what's going on, at least not you know mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. They don't feel like they have – uh, you know, pathways to, to get help. And, and when we've talked with a lot of young women, many of the things that enable them to get help, right? They have a sister that tells them about a great OB-GYN or, or a mm-hmm. therapist or an app to use. Guys aren't going to their buddies about their erectile dysfunction right. issues or their anxiety or their drinking problems. And so there's just no entry path for them into getting that further help. And, and that's what we try to produce and build, I guess. Mm. So you mentioned drinking in young men and look, the, you know, I I wrote a whole book about this culture. I lived it myself. I watched my sons go through it. Um, I'll say the alcohol and and in many ways, the marijuana culture, because I, I think a lot of studies show that while men and women are really impacted by marijuana addiction and misuse, often uh, we're seeing males are more prone to that. And certainly in the alcohol culture, you know, in look, I mean, we're, we're based in the deep South In the deep South, you, you, you often the stereotype is you get a truck, you kill a buck, you start drinking, you know, so this, this substance culture in many ways from Minnesota to the deep South is, is so deeply ingrained in young men in so many ways that it's almost an expectation for some, this this rite of passage, this pronouncement. I mean, you, you know, do you see that? And if so, I mean, what's our way out of that? Yeah, it, it's a big question, and it's absolutely part of it. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in the university setting, and, and I know we've talked in other conversations about you know, the need to go even further upstream. So, I mean, that's that's part of the conversation, right, is that we are talking about substance use education too, too late, right? So, like, when I was growing up, even though I stayed away from substances until I got to college, uh, every Christmas when we were out at the hot tub at the random, you know, courtyard in the middle of nowhere, all of the adult men were five beers deep or a few beers deep or right. whatever it was. And it never even got to a point of 
problematic substance use from my perspective, but it was there. It was the culture. And so you do feel like as you're growing up, you have to adopt that culture. So earlier education is key. And then I think there's a a translation or a conversation that we need to have with our young young men, but really, you know, young adults in general about identifying uh, whether or not you have a problem relative to a bunch of other people who are behaving in the same way. And that's the problem that I think a lot of these young guys have, which is that the education that they're receiving feels very binary. Here's what a substance use disorder is. If you drink more than five drinks in a night, you've got a problem. And they're looking out onto all their buddies. Everybody around them is drinking five drinks a night. And so what I always talk about is these three kinds of groups that we need to be able to teach guys how to identify where where they fit in that group. There's the kind of guys who are drinking aggressively in college that are going to be just fine when they graduate, right? There's not a genetic predisposition. Once they start having a job, they start having a family, they might drink on the weekends. They might, you know, during a bachelorette part or a bachelor party or whatever it might be, uh, you know, imbibe a bit more than normal. But they're going to be fine and they're not going to exhibit those the, those sort of symptoms of substance use disorders. Then you've got people like me, right, who was binge drinking, blacking mm-hmm. out related to my mental health issue, right? right? So, like, I had untreated mental illness and so I was binge drinking to cover up that social anxiety. And so until I dealt with that mental illness, I was always going to have those problems right. with alcohol use and, and and all the sorts of things. And then you've got people who have substance use disorders, right? And when you're a 19-year-old guy, it's very easy to justify and rationalize your behavior because you don't know which of those three groups you fit into. Right. And most of the education that you're receiving doesn't have that level of nuance. It's just if you're drinking a lot, you have a problem. And you're like, well, then everybody in my house has a problem. And and so that's the kind of nuance that we need to get. And then we need to teach friends and people around these people to be able to identify and have those kinds of conversations. Because I think if you asked any of my friends in college – Matt was just a heavy drinker. Like it yeah, was but it right. wasn't there was never that oh I think there's something else going on or whatever. Yeah. So he just drinks more than us, but we're all drinking a lot anyway. So when how my son Hudson woke up in the hospital after an accidental drug overdose when he was in college. Um, he was in a coma for a couple of days. And while he was in a coma, some of his friends called me to the side and they said, Hey, you know, uh, when he wakes up, you should know he, he might need some help because he's been on something for a while. It didn't dawn on them to, to rate sound the alarm of emergency at that time, because they were just seeing it all around them, you know? And I think that education process, you're right. There, there, there's a difference. And, it looks different in different individuals. You might have one individual having two alcohol drinks a day, but using marijuana morning, noon, and night and mixing in some pills, and then they have a problem, but they can't look across others and see exactly a mirror reflection to help them understand that they have a problem. And the other thing is uh, that you talked about that's so interesting reminds me of when, as a middle-aged man, I grew up with some anxiety and depression, just like you were talking about you faced as a young man, and I never dealt with it. I didn't understand what it was. I didn't even know how to put my finger on it. So I go to a a psychiatrist as a middle-aged man for the first time, Sure. and I walk in there in all my male ego, and I walk in there and I don't say, hey, I sometimes am depressed, 
I'm often anxious. I don't know who I am literally, and I'm not sure I do figuratively. Help me. What I said is, man, you know, I'm a man. I put that armor up. Hey, here's the thing. If I could just finish this book I've got under contract on deadline, I'll be fine. Yep. I, really, that's all it is. You know, it's just like if I could just get to the holidays, if I could just finish that project, if I could just get in the new house, the new job. That's what I said. So what I did is I walked out with a prescription of Adderall, which I soon was misusing. And uh, I did finish that book. But then when I began to pair that with alcohol, my life spiraled out of control. That's on me. And I own that because I didn't speak a truth in that first meeting with a psychiatrist. But going back to what you were saying, I'm not passing the buck, but how I was raised in the culture, I didn't understand how to speak yep. the truth. Yep. I was taught generally, culturally, there is no such thing as that truth. Yep. The the number of uh, you know adult men who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s that I speak with about manual that then open up to me and I'm maybe the second or third person that they've opened up to about what they're going through. Right. It's I've told my wife, I just started therapy and now I'm talking with you or sometimes it's an, I haven't even told my wife that I'm Mm -hmm. going through this. I mean, that's the level of how deeply ingrained this hesitance to reach out for help and express a need and all these sorts of things is for so many men. And so then you have to look when, when you look at our young adult men and when you look at the sons of those guys, it's like how 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 well equipped could they really be to be able to confront these sorts of things when that conversation was never something that was going on at home, right? Because I can tell you anybody's, you know, from the conversations I've had with these young adults, you can feel it when your parents are struggling, you almost always know, right? right. Even if you don't know the depth of it, you know to some degree what's going on. And if they're not openly talking about, here's what I'm doing to get help. And this was my story, right? You just assume, well, that's that's the way business gets done around here, right? Right. We just we just aren't gonna We're just gonna bury it. We're just gonna feel the grief and and, and move along. And go through. And and when you trace that down, and you know, I think it's probably related to the things you saw on your parents and the things my dad saw on his parents. I certainly know that's true, you know, with with the people that I'm you know, I don't think in my household truth was ever spoken. I'm being honest. (laughs) And it was a conservative household of of they were they were they thought they were rooted in truth. You know, we were in church every Sunday when I was little. Uh, I, I'm telling you, everything was a lie. Yep. There was no truth. It's like I, I could have a red shirt and somebody would tell me it was white if they thought it would make somebody feel better. Yep. I mean, there was no truth. Yep. A big part of my exploration on this, right, personally, is every day trying to remove blame from the individuals that I was yeah. around and really trying to understand that we're set up societally as men to to fail in this regard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really are. We're taught to be this way. And then also all of the solutions and the things that are being developed aren't, uh, you know, aren't built in a way that it, that is compelling based on the way we're socialized, right? So I, you know, and this is kind of my, you know, the hill I'll die on, right, of, of something that we've talked about a lot is I don't think that having boys should cry and, you know, men should be emotional or any of those things aren't good lofty goals or whatever it might be. But why do we as men have to get there to be able to get mental health care, therapy, or all these Mm -hmm. sorts of things, right? We've set up a system to say, you have to 
cry and be vulnerable to get mental health care and all these sorts of things. I've been very lucky to meet with a lot of men who have gone on journeys, whether it be mindfulness or meditation or therapy or, or you know, uh, you know, they've gotten, you know, uh, prescriptions that have benefited them and all these sorts of things. And they've gotten there in their own way based on the way that they were socialized and how they fit into the world as men. And I think we need to do a better job of saying that it's okay to access care and improvement and optimization or whatever you want to call it in the way that works for you and not make it this barrier of you've got to, you, you can't know. do it unless you fully cross over this <laughs> yeah, line exactly. and become somebody else. That's right. Alexis, you played uh, sports in college. You played volleyball. I'm guessing, you know, from a woman's perspective, you face some of these issues there. I mean, of of having to kind of, did you feel pressure? Like you have to be a certain way as an athlete? Oh, yeah. There's always that pressure of you're going to show up on time. You're going to do five extra reps. You're going to do what you need to do to get the job done. But actually, you're going to do more than you need to do to get the job done because we expect this level of you. And I think we are doing a lot better job now in the athletic space of having these conversations with athletes of it's okay to cry. It's if you're hurt, you need to take care of your body. If you're struggling, like let's talk about it. And so I think we're doing a lot better job in that space. And I th- it comes from the top down, but I also think it starts at home. It starts in the family. It starts in the community you're surrounding yourself with. So I, Matthew, I kind of want to ask you of as a female, how can we better support men in our lives? How can we open that conversation, that gate, create a safe space where it's like, it's okay to cry without saying it's okay to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting because I have kind of, I have sort of my personal perspective and maybe a bit of a nuanced answer in that it, it, some of the manual users actually are women on these college campuses okay. because the, it's a small number. Okay, but, but you have some. They're using it as a mechanism to help their partners or, or the, their brothers or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. And I I sort of hesitate or pause because I think it's an important question because I do think that there is a over-reliance of men on women to help them get through this, right? There is too Mm. much burden Mm. being, you know, born by women as Mm. sort of the de facto therapists for all of these men. And and, and honestly, if you want to go really, you know, dramatic and it's how a lot of things like domestic violence and verbal abuse and all these sorts of things start, Mm -hmm. right? Because you start to say, this is my only outlet. So I I only hesitate to say that I do think a lot of what we're trying to do with manual and what more institutions need to do is to step up for men so that they're not so reliant on that individual woman Mm -hmm. in their life to be be there. And I'll be very open, right? Olivia, my fiance, helped me through a lot when I was going through things when I was 22, 23, 24 – it was an undue burden on her, certainly, right? And so there should have been more right. around. But I, but I do think that, you know, largely, if I had to sort of answer what, what can women do more generally, et cetera, I think some of it has to do with redefining expectations of what they value in men that they're dating or, or those sorts of things, right? Which is, starts to get to be a very dramatic conversation, right? But I do think we, we hear a lot from young men confusion of, I'm told to be tough, these girls like me if I'm quiet and all these sorts of things. And then at the same time, we're hearing – this is just what I'm hearing from 18, 19, 20-year-old guys across the country. And then at the same time, I'm being told to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and to be open up and, and mm-hmm. to cry. And then at the same time, then those girls aren't as attracted to me anymore. This is just what they're telling me. It's a very, very complex conversation mm-hmm. from that point. So I don't know if I have a perfect answer. Yeah. But but I, but I do think that if we're asking men to be – 
more complex and more nuanced and more open. Mm -hmm. And we're saying that's a good thing to aspire to, not just women, but as a society in general, we need to be excited about that and then promote that when it Mm -hmm. happens versus saying, we actually liked you the old way, Mm -hmm. you know, when you were tough and reserved and guarded and you weren't open, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's not just a a conversation for women and partners or whatever. It's a conversation for parents and and the institutions that we're a part of, athletic departments and Mm -hmm. coaches, right? Like, I think, you know, they need to be comfortable with their guys being different than what they were 20 or 30 years ago. And if they're not, those men are going to just revert back Mm -hmm. to you know, what they were raised on. So one answer I have for that, because that, that is a great question. And I, I love what you have to say, Matthew, on that. And like for me personally, there was a big change in my life. So uh, in my marriage, even when, you know, I felt as a um, my wife would have a position of, you know, fear around things like you you're talking like you don't know if you want to stay in this job because you feel like you're called to do this. She, you know, she would feel fear around that. And, and what I always say, I'm a broken record about being seen and heard, right? I can't say that enough is a big shift for us. When I, when I begin to see her and hear her not around expectations of her, just who she was and really hear what she was feeling. And the same was in reverse. Maybe, yeah. I, I always say, like, I actually went and made a whole lot more money once I was seen and heard that I didn't want to be viewed as making money. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually a true story. Yeah. That's actually a true story. I, I, I crumbled under the pressure of that fear around the expectation of what I needed to do. Once we got to a point where where I kind of in both ways, where I could articulate being seen and heard is me, and I have these fears, and I don't want to be trapped into a job I don't like, even if it does put some financial burden. Really, once we got to that point, and it took that pressure off, and I, and I do think that's the thing. I mean, right there, the the there are still many stereotypes that exist, and and I, I wish I could say that. We we still don't often see men in a perspective of you will go be the breadwinner. I mean, it is the 21st century, but that still exists in many respects. And men also place that pressure on themselves. You know, I, I think it's about and we talk about this a lot of sort of redefining all of the words that men are raised on and, and really trying to change that. So I don't personally think there's anything wrong with wanting to be resilient or being Mm -hmm. a provider to your family. Those are both, you know, Mm -hmm. if you, I don't even know if you'd call those masculine traits, those might Mm -hmm. just be human traits, but regardless, they're good things to aspire to. And I think most men would say they want to be tough and resilient and providers to their family. It's the second degree of what does being tough mean and what does resilient mean? What does being a a provider mean? Maybe for your family, it means stepping up and and raising the kids and being around, right? Mm -hmm. If that, if your partner is the one who's out, uh, you know, being the breadwinner, right? But you've got to be comfortable with that and not tie your identity up so much with it. Or for resiliency, I often talk about how uh, I don't see resiliency as holding on uh, and resisting getting help as long as you can until you break down and hurt all the people around you. But growing up, that's what I thought and that's what I was taught. Now I believe that resiliency is saying, I've got this issue. I'm going to go nip it in the bud and I'm going to get rid of it or, or manage it to the point where I'm not going to hurt the people around me and I'm not going to mm-hmm. cause these issues and all those sorts of things. So it, it, it's not about punishing 
the idea that a lot of these young men have with just saying, I want to be tough, I want to be resilient, I want to be a provider, I want to be seen that way. It's about saying, what is the actual manifestation of that to the people around you versus what is the sort of faux expectation that you've built up that actually, if you kind of unpack it, isn't as good as it seems. Mm -hmm. Um, But that requires a whole kind of community effort. And and Alexis, to your point, I mean, it's it's everybody's kind of got to get on board with that. Um, And if you don't, then then that foundation starts to kind of crumble. Hi, I'm David McGee. Now, more than ever before, parents need better information about the challenges facing their children, what sorts of issues to expect and when, and the warning signs to look for. From anxiety and depression to addiction, eating disorder and loneliness, students and their families are facing a mental health and substance misuse epidemic that requires new guidance. My new book, Things Have Changed, What Every Parent and Educator should know about the student mental health and substance misuse crisis, offers a clear roadmap for helping students find the joy they want and deserve. Head over to themayolab.com to sign up for our newsletter and find a link to pre-order my new book. And everyone who signs up for our newsletter and pre-orders a copy of Things Has Changed will receive a digital copy of my expanded student toolbox. Visit themayolab.com today. You are listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast with David McGee. Now, back to the episode. I want to ask something of growing up and like the culture we're in now, kind of it's like our parents didn't ask for help. Our grandparents sure as heck didn't ask for help kind of thing of that level of almost guilt. You feel like you're going to let them down by stepping up and asking for help. Have the guys that you've been talking with talked about that at all? Like what level does the guilt or ashamedness of it play a factor? Yeah, I think it's I think it's starting to shift. I mean, I, I do, you know, I graduated in 2016. When I talk with the guys that are on these campuses now, I mean, there's a there's a monumental kind of sea change that is happening around that guilt piece, I think. Um, so I actually think that to some degree, the guilt and the shame is less about the the disappointment of like the the toughness and resiliency. It's really about the lens of all the people around them and the perception that they have of those people, you know, and I think what that looks like for like, I mean, to be totally frank, the the biggest concern I get is not about parents, it's about girls. It's how are they right. going to view me right. as a guy who does these sorts of things and, and who value, you know, and opens up and have has these kinds of conversations. So I hear that quite a bit. Um, and then and then from their peers, right? Mm. So it's how are the guys around me going to value me as a leader or whatever mm-hmm. it might be if I'm the one guy who has to go get help or, mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. And so a, a big part of the conversation that we're having with these young guys is trying – there is a level of normalization. I talk – the analogy I always give is if, if, you, if, you, if you play three-on-three basketball, right, with, with any you – know, you find six guys, to, you know, five guys to go play three-on-three basketball with on any college campus – one of them is going to be dealing statistically, right? I mean, at a very high level with a substance use disorder. One of them is going to be dealing with some level of anxiety, depression. One of them is going to have erectile dysfunction before the age of 25, right? Now, if you go up to any group of six guys on a college campus and say, hey, that's your friend group. Yeah. They're going to say, no way. Right. No way. That's my friend right. group. Hey, those are six other guys. And I was like, well, maybe, but then you just pick the, you know, a lucky friend group because if you, if you run that scenario enough times, that's, that's, that's what you're going to find. And so, um, there clearly is 
something there. I, I don't know if it's guilt as much from what I've heard, but it's that uh, it, it's whatever that barrier. Maybe shame's the right word, but it's that barrier that gets built up between uh, the, the perception of of those groups of people mm-hmm. to who I am and my identity, which we know is very you know perilous and tricky anyway as an 18 or 19 year old let alone all those layers of who you're supposed to be as a quote-unquote man you know get get layered into it have you have you learned anything um from the engagement with students so far that is valuable to share to parents i mean i i get to engage with a lot of parents yeah i get in schools throughout the country last just last week i was at a school i had a couple hundred parents at a meeting and um uh, you know, parents continually line up to ask me, help me communicate with my young man. Yep. I mean, they they don't know how. They, they feel like they get bottled up and they can't chisel their way through. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe not a, as comforting of an answer because it's more preventative than in the moment, right? But having these conversations earlier – and building up that confidence, I think, when someone's younger to say you, you can be proud of wanting to get help or, or whatever it is when you're you know in middle school or elementary school or high school or whatever it might be. I think that's a big part of the conversation. I would say and I, I you know, p- policing any young adult social media or whatever it might be is a tricky subject. But I would say that, you know, parents do need to understand the type of men that these men are seeing on social media. And this was something that we, I had sort of mentioned earlier, but I'm a general believer that when people are struggling, they, they typically don't do nothing. They, mm. they have some outlet somewhere, right? Even if it's kind of unproductive. We know these men aren't going to their collegiate counseling centers mm. or to their community or, or to their parents or their friends. And a lot of them have found these sort of safer spaces online through these kinds of well-known sort of chauvinists like Andrew Tate and and people like that who are on social media, Liver King and Fresh and Fit Podcast and all these people that you may have not heard of or parents may have never heard of that have millions of followers and who are espousing messages of uh, that that meet these guys where they are, right? So, so that idea of we hear you, we see you, we know that you're struggling and not questioning that or debating it, that's the first line that these guys take on social media. And that welcomes these guys in. And so they're seeing a lot of content that is justifying a lot of their behavior. And so if you as a parent are are rejecting that immediately, or if you're uh, not accepting that these young guys maybe feel like they are struggling in some way, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to listen mm-hmm. to these other people. And so that that's a lot of the work that we're doing on these college campuses as well to say, you know, it's a tricky dialogue in 2023 to say men are struggling and young men need more help, right? Uh, because for many, in many ways, men still have a significant uh, amount of power. It is a tricky dialogue, right? Have a significant amount of power in society. They hurt a lot of people. You know, when you think about uh, sexual assault and domestic violence, and all these sorts of things, it's hard to square up in our dialogue why we should give young men more support while simultaneously. One, they've you know had a lot of support for many years, and two, they do all these you know potentially negative things. And so, uh, what I can say is, if you double down and and go to these young guys and say, actually, you should you should be just fine, do the work by yourself, they're gonna find another outlet, and that other outlet is even worse 
than what they've already been consuming. And so it's a tough dialogue because of where we are in today's society. There's no perfect answer, but um, I do think you've got to at least empathize with what they're feeling, even if you don't totally agree with it, because that's how you get them on the path to getting more help versus pushing them towards these people that I can tell you are well, absolutely, because we want fewer of those problems Correct. we talked about. Correct. You know, so one issue I have, I can tell you that anecdotally for me, I'm seeing rapidly on the rise. You know, I'm I'm no counselor, I don't pretend to be, but because the McGee name is on a university center at the University of Mississippi that helps students. And it's named after my late son. I get a lot of first level reach out from parents and students all over the country, not just at the University of Mississippi, who will say, you know, hey, I'm struggling or my child is struggling. Where would you turn for help? So my, my role is consistently to not even pretend to be a counselor, but get them quickly into counseling, yeah. right? I'm a, I'm a first step. Oh, well, yes, let's get you right in. Here's some places to go. The thing that I'm seeing rapidly, let's say two years ago, I would see um, plenty of female eating disorder. Where do I go? No male eating disorder. Sure. Suddenly, Suddenly, uh, in this past semester, I heard from three to four young men or parents of it's just rapidly showing up on the radar of male eating disorder. Yeah, there was an interesting article in The New York Times, I don't know, six months ago or something about the concept of gainorexia. Uh, Yes, uh, I saw that. that, And this is, I actually think, I think you can pretty easily uh, connect one dot to another of men are feeling disconnected. They go to social media to find space. They find that space. Those people are inevitably, they're just multi-level marketing hustlers, right? I mean, that's, That's that's what they're doing. They're trying to sell a product or whatever it might be. And they do that by something very similar to, to what, you know, engendered a lot of women's eating disorders and things like that. They set expectations that are impossible to achieve unless you do something behind the scenes that nobody else is going right. to achieve, right? So, you know, there was this kind of notable, you know, story uh, that's, it's it's comedic, but at the same time, very sad. And I think telling to the situation of this guy, Liver King, who has millions of followers, all of his videos are him eating raw organs and raw testicles and all these sorts of things. And all of these men are buying his desiccated pills, right? These desiccated bull testicle pills, right? Because they're trying to get bigger and they're massively changing their workout routine, the the way they the way they eat, the the way they see themselves, right? And it turns out that Liver King had been on a just exorbitant amount of steroids for right. for right. a few years, right? right? Now, that doesn't get talked about. These guys don't know about it, right? And so they're sitting there saying, I'm doing all the things that this guy's telling me to do. It's not showing up. I've got to go even more dramatic. So then I've got to do something else. I've got to do something so extreme and so intense that's going to push me to a point of being very unhealthy, having an eating disorder or whatever it might be. And so, um, yeah, I think these things are intimately connected. And it's why in a lot of the work with Manuel, like – we don't try to necessarily have the first conversation with these guys be about anxiety or alcohol use or whatever it might be. Sometimes the first conversation is about like sleep or sexual performance or just fitness or whatever it might be because that's something that they do want to improve mm-hmm. on right now. They might not want to improve on their mental health, but they want to sleep better and right. they want to be better at sex and they want people around them to find them more attractive and they want to make more money or whatever it might be. And so we try to start the conversation there and actually say that, being more mentally healthy and, 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 you know, 
having healthy exercise habits and healthy eating habits, all those things are going to contribute and be connected. But yeah, it's a huge problem. It's going to continue to get worse. Um, you know, th- this industry is is rapidly kind of propagating very, I would say, kind of quietly on social media, but it's gigantic. It, it and is. It's really, it's really rough. It seems to be happening fast. Yes. You know? And so when you think of in a, when you think of what young men face, I mean, you know, there there's the, you know, when when you there's no getting away from the football culture. Look, I watch I watch football Saturdays some sometimes on Sunday because I grew up in that culture. But the reality is if you're a young person today, yeah, it's the 21st century and so much has changed, but look at the exposure they get in pornography in roles and objectifying women and how they're positioned there and then you look at this football culture, very largely driven around alcohol, dr- driven around, you know, it's negative if you're injured. You got to get back in the game. You got to yep. be fit. It's this macho, macho culture that, that, frankly, not only all of America, but a good bit of the world is pretty tuned into. Sure. And that is a pure male-driven culture. I think that and, – and this is maybe a little bit outside of the, the football culture but also sort of the social media. But I think there's connection pieces is like what you really have to do with young guys is have – kind of honest conversations with them about what is attainable for them, how they should mix up what they want to do with this kind of broader culture that they're seeing. Because I think a lot of where the challenges happen is when young guys start to project what they think they should be based on what they're seeing from these, whether it be celebrities or influencers or athletes or whatever. And so if you're sitting and stewing all day saying, I can't be that, but I want to be that. Mm. And you don't understand the underneath of it all, right? Why are these, like, what kind of sacrifice are they putting in? What kind of advantages did they have or not have? Uh, You know, all those sorts of complexities. You start to think that maybe you should become that or you need to replicate some of that kind of behavior. Um, But it's really difficult, right? And I mean, I think we see, right, that there still is no shortage of, you know, men with celebrity power, influence, et cetera, who do really bad things to a lot of people. I'm not saying that's football players or culture generally, but in any of these kinds of fields, you see that. And if they're not getting punished, if they're still getting celebrated, all those sorts of things, it's hard to, it's hard to like measure up. Well, why shouldn't I try to go do that thing? Right. Because it seems like they're having a level of success. So I don't know it's a big question. I don't really know if I have a, a solution to it um, other than to say we try to teach young men about sort of attainable pathways to whatever their own personal level of success is and what they hope to achieve versus trying to project whatever they're seeing out in the world onto their own lives. I think that gets you part of the way. But um, inevitably, when you see that kind of macho culture and it is so ingrained and in, in the US we're always going to be fighting against that to some degree or, or not even fighting against it but just acknowledging that it's there and it's going to exist and we're going to have to coexist with it in some in some way mm-hmm. so you're the founder and CEO of manual uh, your own college campuses including doing some work on the University of Mississippi campus where you've had uh, many uh, young men sign up and engage and on other campuses tell us just where you are now and what you see is the uh, future for manual. 
Yeah, we're really excited about sort of the initial traction. So we launched on campuses, so the University of Mississippi and Morgan State University just in October. We already have a little over 2,000 men enrolled in the platform nice. across the country, which is really exciting in just the, the first few months. We expect that to be somewhere around five to 10,000 men enrolled in just the next few months. We're in a bunch of different colleges across the country, uh, including starting a partnership with the Interfraternity Council at the University of Alabama, sort of just down the road. Um, And then I'm really also proud of the work that we're doing with HBCUs and some of the Hispanic-serving institutions. So we have an incredible partnership with MSU Denver. There's a a, a real men's health leader out there, uh, Dr. Steve Risman, who's been a real champion of us, and then some work with Elmhurst and Morgan State University Clark Atlanta, all of these conversations that we've been having about young men are even more complex and interesting and difficult when we talk about the culture of black men and Hispanic men and and GBTQ plus men, how all those sorts of things start to intersect and become more challenging. So we're we're really trying to figure out how to serve those men as well. Um, And continuing to just try to expand the types of content that we're doing, expand the diversity of our team so that we can better serve more diverse men across the country. Um, and and hopefully be in a position where we're serving tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men over the next couple of years and, and, and giving them one of their first opportunities and resources to engage in these kinds of conversations, these kinds of dialogues, uh, you know, in the collegiate setting, hopefully in the high school setting, you know, frankly, we've more so than we even expected when we have conversations with these young guys, even when they're 19, 20, they're telling us, I wish I had this when I was 14, 15, right? So we know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And then we've had a lot of conversations about what does it look like to adapt what we're doing to men who are 30, 40, 50, 60. It becomes even more difficult because things are so ingrained. But the reality is men are leaving the workforce at a really rapid rate. Uh, men are dying, uh, I mean, like daily, weekly on, on job sites in the construction industry and all these sorts of things because of issues with substance use and suicide, et cetera. So th- there's a deep hurt with a lot of mm. men and, and it's affecting a lot of parts of society. It's hurting women, it's hurting families. So um, that's the the where we're gonna be, you know, playing and operating and going back to the football analogy. I mean, I think we're, we're on the one yard line going the other way um, and uh, <laughs> excited about kind of what, what's to come. Yeah, so where can people find out more about Manual? Sure, so our website is manual.care. Uh, you can see some of our videos and some of the information and some of the universities that we're partnered with. Um, We're always open to having a conversation. I mean, we really see this as a movement that needs to be created around advocating for our young men and, 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 and how to support them in the context of where we are and getting them, you know, more high quality resources that make them better family members, better husbands, better partners, better fathers, all these sorts of things. So anybody who wants to be you know, around that mission, we can probably find a way to, I hope to, everybody to create wants to a partnership. That mission, um, yeah. So that, that's, that's the, the best way. All right. Matthew Stefanko, thanks for joining us on the Mayo Lab podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab Podcast. The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, David McGee, Alexis Lee, and Slade Lewis. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones. 
And our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee, we need your help. Tell others about it. And we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of David McGee and guests of the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.